Hello, my name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with... Oh, what a crowd, what a crowd. I got no respect at all. Hey, my mom took me to a dog show and I won, I tell you. Rodney Dangerfield. Someone that I feel like, and I say this all the time, what is his cultural footprint today to people that did not grow up with him? The, the Simpsons episode. 100% the Simpsons episode. I would say that until watching the movies that I watched this week, that was probably my longest time that I ever spent with Rodney Dangerfield. I had seen Caddyshack, did not remember it very well, and I didn't see any of the other films that he starred in, but he didn't really star in that many anyway. Well, Rodney gave me my start in showbiz, you know, uh, back in 96, you know, like I'm playing the MGM Grand, and Rodney's there, he's playing Caesar's Palace, and so I, of course I want to see Rodney, and so, uh, you know, I go up and visit him in his suite, we make dinner plans, I go see him there, and of course he opens the door, and he's wearing the robe. The, the robe and nothing else. The robe is barely tied up, his dick and balls, they're hanging right out, and he, and he says to me, oh, Will, Will, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot that we had this meeting, I got Ron Jeremy coming over and he's bringing a couple hookers. I feel really bad about that. So I say, oh, that, that's oh, that's okay. You know, we chat for a little bit. And then, you know, Rodney uh, takes me back to the elevator. And, and I say to him, so how are you doing, Rodney? And, and Rodney tells me, hey, how am I doing? I'm saying bye to you. And I'm going to say hi to a guy who can suck his own dick. <laughs> Classic Rodney Dangerfield. And I feel like we covered him at length. Good night, everybody. Uh, that's a story that Bob Saget tells on, on many... Uh, many opportunities, many podcasts over the years. I feel like every Rodney story from a celebrity has him in a bathrobe with nothing else on. I've heard that anecdote a lot. Yeah, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, you know, there's it, it, add, it adds to his appeal. You know, there's something kind of Something kind of abject about Ronnie Dangerfield. Something dangerous, if you will. So I was surprised when you picked this topic because Rodney Dangerfield is a giant of comedy. I don't associate him first and foremost with film, although when you think about it, he was for a time a giant of comedy film, too. He had the number six highest grossing film of the year 1986 uh, at the North American box office. Number six. <laughs> that is Back to School, which made more money that year than James Cameron's Aliens did. So for people that may not know who Rodney Dangerfield is and have only seen him on The Simpsons, he is a comedian who gets our respect. His structure of joke is he says he's a loser, says he has no respect, that he's ugly. Then there's a uh, setup and the punchline is basically somebody uh, debasing him. Hey, I tell you, I get no respect. Last week, my wife told me that she was going to cut me down to twice a month. But I thought about it and I figured, hey, that's not so bad. I know a couple guys that she cut out completely. I'll tell you. I walked in on my wife and the milkman. The first thing she says is, don't tell the butcher. I tell you, no respect. No one can see Will is wearing a red tie and a white shirt, and he's tugging at it as he goes. God damn it, Donald Trump, you stole Rodney Dangerfield's shtick! Rodney Dangerfield is, of course, a titan of film comedy, because in addition to Back to School, he was also in 1979's Caddyshack, which is a very fondly remembered comedy, a real boomer perennial. I mean, we'll get to that, but the first question I want to ask is, did you ever listen to any of Rodney's records or specials? I've got one of his comedy albums. I believe it is called No Respect, and I've listened to it. My relationship with Rodney Dangerfield is that when I was 11 years old, I rented Caddyshack, and I had the reaction to it that many people have, which is that I thought a lot of it was pretty boring. A lot of it isn't very funny, but that every time Rodney Dangerfield showed up, I thought he was insanely funny. Like, when I was 11 years old watching Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack, that opening scene where he, like, comes into the golf club and then he, go he goes into that gift shop and he's looking at the hat and he says, hey, this, this hat's really bad. Right, he, he says it funnier than that. But then he looks at Ted Knight, who's wearing the hat, and he says, oh, it looks good on you, though. <laughs> 
I laughed so hard seeing that. And I mean, I didn't laugh ex- as hard this week seeing it, but I still think he's like really funny. What do you movie. think that your 11 year old's reaction to that stemmed from? Was it because that he was kind of a big, gregacious guy that was punching holes in those rich pricks around him? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had cause to think about what made Rodney Dangerfield funny this week sitting through all these movies which <laughs> yeah being like oh these are not very funny <laughs> first of all he was overweight and ugly so that immediately puts you on his conventionally side. ugly maybe there's some people who uh like rodney dangerfield's bulging eyes don't get me wrong he, he's a beautiful man beauty comes in many shapes and sizes but he doesn't have that preppy craig kilborn thing you know yeah that's right he is like a comedian that escaped from the vaudeville circuit, it looks like. Or, you know, when you read his history that he came up, that he had a real bad life, that he struggled, and that he played on the Catskill circuit a lot. You're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. This is what I imagine when I think of Catskill comedian. Yeah, he seems like two different eras of comedy went into the transmogrification machine from the fly and created one guy. It's like he's a vaudeville joke machine. Yeah, he's like uh, Groucho Marx. Yeah, but also he's somebody who really channeled his pain into his art. And both of those things, like he is of that post-Lenny Bruce like comedy as art comedy as therapy school but he's also like a master joke craftsman uh you know ratatat you know bob hope jack benny style one of his friends said that early on when he was doing comedy for like a decade and couldn't get a foothold he did so many different things and one of them was a lenny bruce style kind of monologue rapping thing which would of course reappear in the rapping ronnie album oh yeah no respect no respect. <laughs> you know, Roddy Dangerfield is also defined by the shtick, the brand that he created, the no respect guy, his delivery of those jokes and sticking to it. He was never someone who tried to like spread his wings as far as what his comedy persona was. Once he got it down, he just continued to do it basically until his dying day. And that's what he was defined as because he could do it so well, even though it's basically the same structured joke every time. Yeah, it's kind of like high coup isn't it but i mean he was like a master and it took him 30 years to get to the guy that that we see it took him that long to hone his craft and come to the persona that he came to and just just hone in on the kind of delivery and the kind of joe i mean like listen to the guy's voice right it's very specific and it feels like it was pre-built for those types of like, oh, I can't do a, a Rodney Dangerfield voice. I did not watch a Rodney, um, what, no, Rover Dangerfield enough <laughs> to be able to get it down. I'm glad you brought that up because actually I saw Rover Dangerfield when I was a little kid. What is Rover Dangerfield, Will? This is really tough to explain to new generations, but Rodney Dangerfield was so iconic that in either the late 80s or early 90s, a feature film animated cartoon was made he did the voice of the main dog and it, yeah it's a, it's a dog who has the personality of rodney dangerfield who also looks like rodney dangerfield and even has his red tie yeah i mean that's how big rodney dangerfield was the tagline of the film is the dog who gets no respect the premise is it's a city dog who goes to the farm and the poster makes it look like a like jesus story and like rover aka um, roger plays the jesus figure and if you watch the trailer for the film it is not cheap either like it's not like a cut right hanna-barbera job which makes it that much more shocking 
It's all about Rodney Dangerfield. But getting back to why Rodney Dangerfield was funny, he didn't become a big star until very late. He didn't take the stage name Rodney Dangerfield until the 60s when he was in his 40s. And he was already working on the side. Like he did like aluminum siding to to make a living before that. But he'd been working as a comedian for like 10 or 15 years before he even got that stage name. And he was... 59 when Caddyshack was released. People like to say like, ah, you know, Rodney Dangerfield only got his break at 59. And it's like, yeah, he did, but he did comedy since like, you know, he was a teen. (laughs) It's just, he didn't get a foothold until then. So there was, I think, a sense that his success was both hard earned, but also very unlikely. He worked really, really hard for a long time, and then he somehow snuck in through the side door. And I think that this informed his screen persona, because in his most popular movies, he's playing a rich asshole, but a self-made rich asshole. But that's weird, right? Because that's not his, you know, stage persona. It's not the I don't get no respect guy. It's a rich guy instead, which is different than what he usually does, even though that he can structure essentially the same jokes. Like uh, Harold Ramis tells a story that Rodney pitched him the idea of back to school, that it would be like a loser guy who goes back to school with his son because he never got those opportunities and it was Harold Ramis that told him well wouldn't it be fun if you were like rich instead so then you could be the king and show everybody's what what and it's like oh that's completely different than what Rodney originally intended based on what he usually does maybe it would take a theoretician to understand why he was a certain thing on stage and a different thing in movies (laughs) people don't like to watch poor people on screen I mean probably though like there's this kind of like liberating feeling in some of the movies where it's like yeah he's rich but he worked extremely hard to be rich and now because he did all that hard work he's nouveau riche like he's got in but he's not of that world but because he has the money he's allowed to be there and he has the license to just disrespect that world when he's on stage it's like i don't know maybe the stage is just a more intimate or a more small small scale medium like you don't want to watch on stage like a rich guy talk about how he's like you know punching up to all the other rich guys he knows you want to see like someone who's under trouble talking about their troubles or something more intimate there than like the big screen especially in the 80s where like it was all about new money you could be rich and you'll probably be like a Rodney Dangerfield right you won't be like one of those stuck up suits like Ted Knight in Caddyshack and let's talk about Caddyshack though because this is considered by many a comedy classic all those boomer comedy guys grew up on the Marx Brothers And I think there's clearly an attempt to recapture something of the early Marx Brothers movies here. (laughs) But in slow motion. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this movie basically has a four-person comedy team, but the Margaret Dumont character is included in the team in the form of Ted Knight. I love Ted Knight in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, he's awesome. He's like in Duck Soup, the lemonade salesman played by Edgar Kennedy, like that, like, really slow burn straight man thing. But anyway, as with the Marx Brothers, each of the members brings their own very distinct and very different style and energy. And, you know, your mileage may vary. You've got Bill Murray, who's, you know, doing... Simple um, Jack. Simple Jack. Yeah, that's a nice way to describe it. As the groundskeeper, a lot of mugging, a lot of... uh, Hey, boo-boo! Like he's doing a Yogi Bear voice. What can you say? Bill Murray, famous for this movie. He was iconic for this role. I think he's been funnier elsewhere. I think I had to be there when it came out, I guess. And then speaking of you had to be there, you got Chevy Chase. Yeah, I mean, I know we have a lot of listeners who are big Chevy Chase fans, so let's not disrespect the chase I think you're thinking specifically of like Matt Farley, who loves Chevy Chase. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly who I'm thinking of. 
I mean, he is not funny in this movie. He's like the son of a rich guy. He's got like no real shtick going on other than he's a cool dude that everybody likes. I don't want to say that Chevy Chase has no talent. He's a medium talent, as his co-star would say. He has a very particular sliver of talent that starts to sparkle when you see it in the right light. Like when he's dunking on the Chevy Chase show. Yeah, (laughs) or or in Fletch when he's dreaming that he's a basketball player and he's got the big afro wig. Oh boy. I mean, the context of being a player at a golf club, that's perfect Chevy Chase. That's like right up his alley. Well, I mean, Chevy Chase is, like his talent is a particular energy that he emanated in a particular kind of like underhanded way of selling a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's got kind of a like big Lebowski energy to him at the best of times. But I mean, good God, I I mean, you've got Rodney Dangerfield in this movie. Who wants to see Chevy Chase? <laughs> I agree. Because every time Rodney's on screen, not enough in this film. He's always wearing bright clothes. A lot of the times the camera seems to just be rolling and letting him riff around the room. <laughs> or he's doing stuff like he has like a mechanical golf bag that also plays music and like a dance party breaks out. That's 80s gold right there. Yeah, I think he's hilarious. I think the stuff with Ted Knight. We're waiting. I like when Ted Knight is on that boat and then it cuts to like Rodney Dangerfield looking from his binoculars and he's like, hey, it's my buddy. That whole sequence is probably the highlight of the movie where the boat is about to crash into Ted Knight's little boat. He's like, oh, no. And the anchor falls. Mm, Beautiful stuff. It's weird that like Rodney Dangerfield throughout his very slim film career didn't do that much slapstick stuff probably because he was old. Oh, yeah. I mean, watching him in this movie and then watching him, well, frankly, in Back to School, but definitely in Ladybugs, it's like a man who is already not in particularly good shape in 1979. Don't make this poor man have to, like, coach a kid's soccer team. So, yeah, Caddyshack, I think, overall, not very good, but it's got, like, 15 very solid minutes. Yeah, everything was Roddy Dangerfield and Ted Knight, pretty much. Oh, my God, the scene where Bill Murray and Chevy Chase meet, which I understand was not originally in the script, like, they started filming the movie and they realized wait a minute our two biggest stars don't have a scene together we got to get them together and that scene i think is just like not funny at all all i was thinking while watching this movie is i can't wait to the day that we do a patreon episode on caddyshack 2 alan arkish's caddyshack 2 oh i can't wait in which jackie mason takes over in the rodney slot none of the returning cast So, moving onwards, Rodney Dangerfield had a, as Will said, a massive hit was Back to School. And, uh, yeah, it's it's, a, it's an amusing picture. You know, whatever. It, it's fine. Uh, he plays, as I said before, a nouveau riche guy who owns a chain of big and small clothing stores. Through circumstances that aren't worth getting into here, he divorces his wife, played by Adrian Barbeau, who is just one of many incredible actors. Give an award to the casting director of this film, because this cast is insane. Keith Gordon, Burt Young, Robert Downey Jr., M. Emmett Walsh, Ned Beatty, and Sam Kinison, Robert Picardo, and of course, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. as himself. America had Rodney Fee when this came out everyone wanted to be in this movie so yeah Rodney Dangerfield goes back to school and I mean the, the movie is smart these people have figured out how to get you on Rodney's side because like the only way he can go back to school is if he buys his way in but also like he's got to be nouveau riche he can't be old money and it's implied that basically a lot of the professors at the school are old money so you know this guy like he's been working he's been working his whole life to get into school not unlike Rodney himself was working his whole life to get into 
comedy. So you kind of feel like he deserves to be there. And, you, you know, there's a scene early on when he buys everyone their textbooks. So you, you're already kind of on his side. Yeah, the film does everything for you to be on his side, even though that he has to be an evil, corrupt person to have a business as powerful as it is. <laughs> but it was in the context of this movie, you know, like the Three Stooges somehow being plumbers. How do they get this job or this equipment? You just accept it. And it's fun to see Rodney. You know, we've talked about that, like the 80s may have been a time where there was the least jokes in a movie. <laughs> and this is definitely a case of that. I think fondly on 80s comedies for some reason. Like it's sort of like culturally conditioned into us that the 80s were this great decade. Yeah, because our parents told us that it was good. That's why it's culturally conditioned. And also those same like parent age people have such a loud voice when it comes to places like the internet. I guess. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching that new Belushi documentary that's on, I think HBO put it out. And I turned it off after a couple of minutes because it opens with that clip from Animal House, you know, the I'm a zit scene. Yeah. I just watched that and I thought, I'm so fucking tired of seeing this joke. Get some new fucking jokes. He can't, Will. He's dead. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm talking I'm talking about the boomers here. Oh, yeah, I agree. That I'm a zit thing would not pass muster on TikTok today. I'm sorry. No. It wouldn't. I mean, just look at Hell's a Poppin'. Now that's a jokey movie. Fuck, Hell's a Poppin', Duck Soup. You look at fucking Buster Keaton, like, literally breaking his neck for a laugh back in the 20s, and then you compare it to Chevy and Dan Aykroyd. Just sleepily walking through the excess that is the 80s. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I do sort of like Back to School because you got you got Rodney Dangerfield, who's a naturally kind of lovable and likable screen presence. He's doing one-liners. He's doing quips. Some of them are funny. You know, your mileage may vary. Like, every second joke is horrifically racist and sexist. <laughs> Rodney fucks in this movie. Oh, Rodney fucks. Yeah. yeah, but I can understand why this film would become as much of a classic as it's considered by some people because those people probably saw it as kids. And this feels adult, right? It's about an adult going to a school and creating trouble and having like a fantasy version of that. So there is something appealing there. And, you know, any kid can see themselves in Rodney Dangerfield, this uh, very different looking man doing a bunch of shtick and having a blast and just you know spending money like you know he didn't get it from like oil or something like that well for kids it's always fun to see like an adult who infiltrates the adult world but doesn't respect it you know an, an anarchist like whether it's Scratcho Marx, whether it's Jim Carrey as Ace Ventura. Now, I wonder why Rodney didn't have a follow-up to Back to School, because his next starring role was Ladybugs in 1992, which is a pretty big gap from 1986, the release of Back to School. Well, I saw an interview with Norm MacDonald where, like, Rodney Dangerfield was on SNL one time and he said to Norm MacDonald, hey, remember, all this is bullshit. Uh, stand up is what really matters. So clearly stand up was like his first love and his only love. And the movies were probably just a good way to make money. So that's how we come to Ladybugs, directed by Canada's own Sidney J. Fury. Uh, Ladybugs is a comedy in which... Hey, put some air quotes around that comedy <laughs> uh, signifier. Rodney's got a fiance. She has a son and she's only going to marry him if he gets... That's the big promotion, but he doesn't get the big promotion. 
uh, but he may get the big promotion if he coaches a, a little league uh, soccer team or an all-girl like teenage soccer team. Sorry, I'm already fucking up this plot synopsis because I didn't take the assignment seriously. No, this movie's terrible. <laughs> I'm not even going to connect these dots, but what ends up happening is that his fiance's son gets recruited to basically infiltrate the soccer team and pose as a girl. The son's got a wig and shenanigans ensue. The son is in love with one of the young girls on the team played by Eyes Wide Shut's Vanessa Shaw. Who does show up in this movie very creepily running in slow motion. Oh my god. Yeah, she's like in a bikini running in slow motion and and I checked, she's 16 years old. I felt like not very good watching that scene, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, one of the problems here is like this is a family comedy. And nobody cares about what they're making. It's very tepid Rodney Dangerfield. It's very like PG rated Rodney Dangerfield. He's got no one to fight against. That's the good Rodney Dangerfield. Have the, the filmmakers learn nothing from uh, Back to School and Caddyshack? Oh my god, there's an unbearable scene in this movie where Rodney is talking to like one of the girls on the team and she's she's like oh I'm I'm not pretty like the other girls on the team I've got these glasses I've got these braces and Rodney has to get like all sensitive he has to be like hey you're you're beautiful you know you're beautiful inside and out you know all that and it's like buddy you spent like every movie you've ever done saying hey that that woman's got a face like a horse or you know whatever like like 50% of your comedy is about how women are ugly and now you're trying to sell me on this scene where hey actually he's like really sensitive uh and and a good man (laughs) he's got a heart of gold will doesn't quite work it doesn't quite work no it's awful don't watch it if you're listening to this but you would definitely recommend Sidney j fury and rodney dangerfield's follow-up right my five wives well that movie i have seen that was a direct-to-video film and i mean it's got an incredible cast it's got andrew dice clay john biner jerry stiller molly shannon uh, john panette i think his name is that uh hefty comedian it involves rodney dangerfield like inheriting somebody's property in utah as well as their wives and there's a scene where rodney wears a thong in it. okay so that's the highlight of the film <laughs> so i think the lesson that we learned here doing these rodney films is that you know some comedians have a very big place in our hearts their presence and oh boy their filmography does not stack up <laughs> i'm trying to think if i came away with like a big takeaway from watching these movies uh, i did rodney dangerfield had a much smaller film career than i ever thought he did my takeaway is uh, I went to a psychiatrist's office. The doctor said, you're crazy. I said, I want a second opinion. He said, you're ugly. I get no respect. <laughs> the audience is like jumping to their feet and cheering. They can't get enough of it. So as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Kevin Barr and it goes, hey, Important Cinema Club, no real question here, but you guys are some of the only people I know who might find this of interest. I was going through some old newspapers from my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, and stumbled upon this beautiful ad for a triple feature at the drive-in in 1970. Bloodthirsty Butchers, Torture Dungeon, Herschel Gordon, Lewis's Something Weird. Man, imagine taking a girl on a first date and that being your choice of movies. Thanks for all the entertainment of the past weeks. You know what I love about that is there is not an entertaining movie on that bill. No. All three movies are like, there's terminology that they have at the drive-in called The Chaser. And The Chaser is the movie that's so bad, you put it on last and hope that everybody leaves so you can go home early. And all three of those movies are Chaser. Those are movies to play in the background so people can like make out and not think that they're missing anything. Also, me and Will would kill to see those movies at a drive-in or movie theater. I would be so happy. Oh my God. 
if we could time travel, we're like, this is the price we would pay in 2021 to see these movies. Like, it would give a heart attack to whoever's taking the ticket because they're like, this is trash. What are you doing? You got Herschel Gordon Lewis. You got two Andy Milligans. Oh, God. That's woo. on beautiful 35 millimeter film with the film probably like breaking in the projector. Even though it was just recently made or maybe it had already traveled the country. All right. So thanks very much for that little triple bill. So we also have a letter from James Waters. And the subject line is, please, God, no more Kevin Smith. <laughs> you know what? Fuck you. This is our podcast. We will talk about Kevin Smith whenever and wherever we want because the people love it. Okay. Dear Justin and Will, after recent Kevin Smith's NFT talk on both the important cinema club and Michael and us. Wait, you did Kevin Smith on Michael and us? Um, you know, every now and then on Michael and us, you know, we'll say, do we want to have a thing at the end of this episode? Or we're, we're like, we can't end it on like that down note. We have to have something like kind of funny and silly at the end. And then I'll think, okay, what's something like really stupid? That's where I come Let in. Let me get the fart machine out. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, oh yeah, Kevin Smith <laughs> NFTs. And now I'm being held accountable for no, it. No, you're not. Because the letter continues. I come to you with my own suggestion for future episode. And I also have a small Kevin Smith anecdote. I'm sorry for saying fuck you, by the way. <laughs> this sounds like a very good person. My own Kevin Smith apostasy came around the time of Prince's death. I know exactly where this letter's going. I never could get into Smith's films, even as a pre-adolescent. All I remember is Chasing Amy with a scene featuring the worst depiction of Black Panther-esque militant that deserves its place in the Seven Circles of Hell. But listen to his live stage appearance on YouTube and vaguely associated him with adolescent heroes like Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright. Well, you may associate him with those two because there was a very funny clip where Kevin Smith forced them to watch Clerks 2. Uh, not Edgar Wright. Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. they were very uncomfortable when they had to give notes at the end. On the day of Prince's death, he posted a tribute wherein he talked on stage for 40 minutes about how horrible Prince was as a man and artist, also making fun of how short he was and mentioning only the bat dance as his only worthy contribution to the world. So in light of my Kevin Smith's cancellation project, I urge you to talk about Prince's cinematic output, an artist whose work could stand on its own without him needing to go on a countrywide speaking tour, being a petty shithead to keep his reputation afloat. Oh, and a Monty Hellman episode. I will now excuse myself as I bow my head in shame, digging up Mr. Smith to bury him yet again. Best wishes, James. I gotta say, Kevin Smith's story of doing a documentary on Prince is one of his funniest stand-up bits. I agree. That and the Superman story are probably like the two best things he's ever done. <laughs> uh, so if you haven't seen that, check it out. Because it sounds like maybe you saw something else. Basically, for people who haven't seen it, I think it was on An Evening with Kevin Smith, right? Yeah, that's right. Which was Prince asked Kevin Smith to make a documentary about the release of a new Prince album. But it turns out to be kind of like a Jehovah's Witness recruitment film. <laughs> yes. And he said that people were coming out of like listening to the album. He'd be like, hey, can I ask you a few questions? And they were like, why is the guy from Mallrats here what's going on which is actually funny because that's all Kevin Smith does now doing like Q&A's and he's like oh I love so much your show Th that's um, that I mean I do agree with the letter writer that Prince was a greater artist than Kevin Smith overall but about his cinematic output oh, his cinematic output I mean Purple Rain and Under the Cherry Moon yeah I mean there's I haven't seen Under the Cherry Moon I don't think a lot of people have I, I'm curious about it though it looks kind of baffling and strange I love that Under the Cherry Moon Correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem to have accumulated much of a cult following, no. even though it has like all the earmarks of something that would. I mean, Prince's film Graffiti Bridge, which he wrote, directed and starred in, doesn't have much of a cult following either, does it? I don't I don't think so. I mean, Purple Rain, you know, Prince is one of those guys like Tom Cruise or like 
Bruce Lee, who is so kind of like intense and otherworldly that there's a very thin line between being really cool and being totally absurd. Let's say that, but he's a monstrous character in Purple Rain. (laughs) He's terrible. I mean, when you watch that movie, you wince at a lot of times, but I mean, fuck, whenever he's performing, you really cannot take your eyes off the guy. So good. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's like, he's like so close to the edge of absurdity. Uh, What's, what the fuck's that song? Like Sexy Rita or something Uh, when he's like writhing on stage. Sorry if I got the name of the song wrong. Yeah. But when he's like writhing on stage, like he's he's orgasmic and he's this like little four foot seven inch man <laughs> who's just like strutting his sexuality. So, you know what? I feel like there's a graffiti bridge in our Patreon future. I think there could be an under the cherry moon in our Patreon future. Frankly, I'd love to explore. There yeah. you go. Did you ever go through a Prince phase where you like listen to a lot of his music? After he died, I kind of made a concerted effort. I listened to a lot of his kind of like golden age stuff. I mean, he's not really, I don't really gravitate towards him, to be honest, but I recognize the talent. Yeah, I've listened to like Purple Rain a million times and some of the other albums. There was like a documentary that came out, I believe, like shortly after his death that I remember enjoying. And it was one of those docs, which was like, oh, I'm going to go check out all this music. And I was like, yeah. oh, maybe not for me. But that's just personal taste. I respect him. I respect the talent. Yeah. So as per usual, you can send us letters on Important Cinema Club Podcast at G gmail.com and on our patreon this week we are talking about what we've been watching this in the last little while okay that sounds like a bad topic that sounds like a weak pitch but we watched movies from all four corners of the earth we watched early jackie chan stuff we watched raul ruiz we watched hong kong hardcore pornography so many strange and wonderful things that we saw this week and we want to give you a roadmap to, you know, a whole world of cinema. Check it out on Patreon this week at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. What are we doing next week, Will? From the ridiculous to the sublime, <laughs> we are looking at the cinema of Taiwanese master Ho Shao Shen. Sweet. Are you a big fan? Uh, I am a fan, yes. And I, I remember when I first encountered his work in high school, I don't think I had ever seen anything that slow before. And I remember seeing, <laughs> I remember seeing three times theatrically, you know, like when I was in grade 10 and just feeling that it was like an affront <laughs> really are you like look at this stuck up man thinking this is cinema i mean i thought it was like a joke it's like this is this is so slow but you know part of me was kind of fascinated and then but like then simon lang slid into your dms and you're like oh now i know what really slow <laughs> oh is. yeah you know I, I watched like millennium mambo after because i like I, I was so fascinated that i actually like sought out whatever whatever of his movies were available <laughs> you're like give me the pay i was like this fucking guy i'll watch i'll watch flight of the red balloon i'll watch Millennium Mambo. I'm the guy who's going to prove that he's just a joke. I don't buy into what the art crowd thinks. Uh, but yeah, I love Ho Shao Shen now. Oh, okay. So there was an about face since then. So that's what we're going to be talking about next week. And until then, my name is Dustin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. We interrupt this program to thank some of our new patron subscribers, who include Kathleen Quinn, Mark Britton, Hannah Hess, and Matt Cook. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. And just a reminder that on June 5th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I will be hosting a 24-hour summer movie mind melter online at Twitch TV slash Important Cinema Club. This will be 24 hours of movies that I think represent the summer. They'll be fun. They'll be action-packed. There'll be stuff that you'll never have seen before. There'll be stuff that'll be just a blast to enjoy with a group. I love doing these marathons online, and I spend months sweating over the lineup that you can experience if you just tune in at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on June 5th. For more information and some hints at what I'll be playing, check out my Twitter page 
at DeclueJ, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. And we now return you to your regular schedule programming. Two great tastes are now tasting great together because Amazon bought MGM. Oh, thank God. Finally, you know that that James Bond movie's going to come out. I know you've been, you know, you're like, I just wish it would come out so I could watch it. I'm sure Amazon's going to drop it in like a month or whatever to their streaming service. They'll probably just like stick with the release plan that they have now. God, I would be so happy if tomorrow it just popped up on Amazon Prime. I mean, I've been waiting for it for too long. I I would like if some fucked up Amazon employee decided to leak it. I'd be so happy. Amazon buying MGM for eight point something billion dollars not good not good mergers very not good nine billion dollars like jeff bezos like he spills that at a cocktail party i mean that is that is nothing to him this man will buy everything at some point and people are like oh but that means that we won't have to buy an mgm streaming service that's good right Uh, such are the meager rewards on this blasted apocalyptic hellscape where disney and amazon fight it out if there's one good thing to look forward to is maybe we'll completely collapse because that happened recently with the giant Warner Brothers merger. Did you read about that? No, I didn't. Yeah, so AT&T bought Warners, right? And they completely scuttled a whole bunch of stuff like canceled movies, canceled shows because they wanted to go in a different direction. And then they did a complete about face and they're like, yeah, we don't really want Warner Brothers anymore. Warner Brothers is merging with the Discovery Channel now. Huh, that's fine. So they completely ditched everything that they had planned because at the end of the day, most of the people in power are fairly incompetent and are only doing things for short-term goals. And it'll collapse right from under them as another anonymous businessman can take over the entire industry. Well, that's a very optimistic forecast. Uh, Something I'll tell you is I saw somebody point out online. I feel like I'm always saying that. I saw somebody say online and I can never remember who it was. I heard from a friend of a friend of mine. You know what? I'm going to say that it was me. I'm going to say that I was the one who originated this insight because nobody will contradict me. I said um, that apparently Amazon or MGM was... A pretty easy company to rent 35 millimeter prints from so if you lived in a big city with an active repertory cinema community you may very well see like i don't know jean-luc godard's king lear on 35 millimeter oh boy and i'm not sure like will that continue to be the case probably not right i don't see why not they don't have the same policy as someone like disney has which is from the top down of like we want to limit everything this is the thing i mean we were talking about this before we started recording is that companies like netflix and amazon want to be cool and because money doesn't really mean anything to them that's all the value that they can have and you know they're big evil awful companies so that's the only like last resort and being able to like rent 35 millimeter prints maybe they'll slap on like an amazon logo that they cut into it okay but ultimately like the reason that you buy a big library like this is to have streaming content eliminating a 35 millimeter rental market is not hurting the streaming market but again I mean, they could kill it because on a spreadsheet, someone's going to be like, wait a minute, we're renting these movies out? We want people to just subscribe to the streaming service. They're not subscribing because they're going to the movie theater, which makes no fucking sense. Exactly. That's not how it works. (laughs) And it's peanuts. Like, why keep the office open? Uh, Because it's cool. Because it gives them clout. That's what they want. That's why Netflix does the kind of projects that they do, right? I mean, uh, also because they could get IPs and stuff like that. But like bringing back Mr. Show or bringing back Kids in the Hall, that's not a big movie money maker because money doesn't matter it doesn't mean anything it's all invisible for companies that big it's all about attention and seeming like you're doing something that i don't know it's cool that nobody else is doing anyway i thought it was fun today reading like there were so many tweets 
the of like stuff that MGM owns now. And also like so many of the tweets were wrong because these entertainment news sites don't actually know what MGM owns. Like I saw IndieWire tweet that Amazon now owns all of Charlie Chaplin's movies because he made them for United Artists, but he didn't actually make them for United Artists. Like he owned the copyrights of those films. So I mean, MGM is not even really a company for it's for a long time, right? Like it folded. Also, MGM sold every movie they made from before 1980 to Warner Brothers. So like a lot of what MGM owns is Canon films and yeah, a lot of United Artists stuff and I think Orion Pictures they bought. So like they have the whole Woody Allen filmography, for instance. Coming soon to Amazon. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it great that Amazon and Woody Allen are now back back in business? I think it's a beautiful Hollywood ending. Will uh, Woody Allen's catalog become so scarce that it'll be like, oh my God, have you seen this Woody Allen film? The man, Amazon, doesn't want us to watch it. <laughs> And, you know, the Amazon police will come knocking down your door. It's like uh, Fahrenheit 451, but instead it's like, I don't know, Woody Allen. How many movies has he made? Like like 88 films or something like that? Well, yeah, currently the Woody Allen filmography is so scarce that you can only watch like eight of his movies on HBO Max, which is the same streaming platform where you can watch the Allen versus Pharaoh miniseries. That's how rare his films are, how suppressed his films are. I mean, not for a while. You say that now, Will, but soon you'll have to be digging through like uh, 35 millimeter prints to be able to watch The Curse of the Chase Scorpion. <laughs> 